0: Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, and every week we look forward to bringing you the current trends and topics in the wine world. Wine, wine, wine. Hi there and welcome to the wonderful world of wine exploring all things wine with you we're your hosts mark and kim and every week we talk to you about trending topics in the wine world and we love to see what each other has been sort of researching on our own so uh hey mark what did you google this week for wine
1: Well, Kim, this week I was researching water use on crops and meats. What's the most used? What's the least used? Because of obviously, I wanted to see about the wine grapes. But the highest use of water is for almonds to raise beef. Those are the highest. Mm-hmm. The lowest were sugar beets and carrot, which I thought was huh. kind of interesting. And grapes are right in the middle. Interesting. I don't know if you really cared about that, but well, that's there, what I you researched. Know,
0: there's a lot of places that don't irrigate at all when they're growing grapes. So I would think that for those areas where irrigation isn't even allowed, it's a, a fairly environmentally friendly
1: crop when it comes to your water usage. That's what I was thinking. It would be yeah. more on the low side, but it was in the middle. Well, so I guess you that's... need
0: to like balance the whole thing out, average it together.
1: What about yourself? So
0: I was... Googling how some of the current tariff situations are going to be impacting wine, I had a question from a business associate who was curious about how some of the tariffs that are either being talked about or are actually being put into play are going to affect people's wine consumption. And I don't know if they were necessarily thinking about the situation with China or if they were thinking about what could possibly happen with Europe and France in particular. But for all of these China tariffs that seem to be taking taking effect in the fall. There's less of an impact for us here in the US because we don't buy generally any wine from China, but it is hurting our wine producers in California who then export into China. So that's really kind of where it gets tricky. So not necessarily from a con- consumer standpoint, but from our producers in California who have been opening new markets in China, this is a bit of a blow to them.
1: You're hearing a lot about China. You're hearing a lot about the French, Mm -hmm. too. Is it it affecting all EU? Is it Italy, Spain? Is it everything in EU? It does
0: seem to be a little more French-focused. I haven't seen too much about it impacting um, Italy or any any other countries uh, at this point. So that, that does seem to be about France. And I know that I've got associates who are in the cheese world. Instead of in the wine world, and they are feeling the same sort of anxiety that some wine people are feeling about additional costs that would be put onto products that are made and produced in France and then imported in here if there were uh, additional tariffs that were tacked onto those French made products. Oh,
1: we'll have to keep an
0: eye out. We absolutely will. So we have a few updates for you about things that have been going on here in the wonderful world of wine. For the second year in a row, we have been nominated for a podcast award. So this is the 14th annual podcast awards, and we've been nominated in the education category. There is a a website that you can check out more information about this that's podcastawards.com uh, and so check us
1: out. And we're excited about that Kim second year in a row so it's all voted by peers who listen to podcasts so we'd love to tell you to, to fill the ballots for us but there is no ballot to fill second exciting thing that I kind of discovered Kim I'm an Alexa user we had talked earlier I'm always asking Alexa stupid questions she comes back <laughs> and says I don't know what you're talking about but the other day I'm sitting on my deck and I said to Alexa play the wonderful world of wine podcast and And sure enough, Alexa can now play the Wonderful World of Wine podcast. It will play the most recent show that is out there. So have fun with that and explore with your Alexa and listen to us on that.
0: Very cool. Our third update is that we are now on Twitter and we have a fantastic Twitter handle. You can find us at Wine Education. So if you want to quickly get the uh, most recent updates from the Wonderful World of Wine and you are on Twitter, find us at Wine Education. So the first article that we want to talk about is from Forbes magazine, which we refer to a lot. And this was about uh, data analytics and wine and wine tasting focus groups, how some new technologies and new ways to get in front of consumers is really changing the way that we think about consumers and wine.
1: Kim, when I was reading this, first thing I wanted to ask you was, what is your definition of analytics in the wine world?
0: I mean, I guess it's for me focusing on numbers first off, but getting a lot of data and then analyzing trends by looking at that data. And, and I, and I you know, it's kind of twofold. It's how do you collect the data? How do you collect smart data, useful data? And then how do you analyze that in such a way that you can get meaningful information out
1: of it? And I'm on the same page as most of the data I'm seeing in analytics and wine is tasting data, what people are tasting, and that leads to what's trending mhm And I'm thinking of it as a retailer, as a wine lover, a lot of times it overpowers me when you see these analytical reports, because there's just so much out there. And I'm trying to interpret it. how can I use this data?
0: Yeah. And I think that that's the hard part. There's a lot of numbers, there's a lot of info, but how do you intelligently take that information and translate it into some form that then is useful to you, the retailer, or useful to the consumer, or a, a lot of these do seem to be focused on presenting this information to producers and how our wine producers able to use this information to either more smartly market their product or, you know, use it in such a way that they can change their winemaking and how they, you know, how they make their wines, what kind of wines they make in order to make a more appealing product for the market.
1: And it's, it's big business for people who collect this data. Mm-hmm. Kathy, I always forget you know the pronunciation or last name. Hoya. Hoya, who we follow, bl- logs. She is big into analytics and actually goes all around the world talking about wine analytics and it's a lot of the stuff she puts out it, it is good data but i'm thinking like you had mentioned it's probably more corporations that want this data to keep up with trends to know what to put out next in the wine world yeah i
0: think that's her focus her focus is more for the brand builders uh and the producers themselves and not necessarily i mean you're you're the front line person you you know personally with being a retailer you know you're you're at the front of or i guess you you could say the end of, of this whole chain of suppliers of wine where you are interacting with the end buyer. You are interacting with the consumer who's the, who's buying that bottle of wine and taking it home and drinking it. I'm sort of in a similar position where my end user is either someone who is going to go out and buy a bottle of wine or someone who is ordering a bottle of wine in a restaurant. And these analytics are kind of a couple of steps up the chain.
1: We both see in our jobs, we want to know trends. We want to see trends as, as far as what we're educating educating and teaching people on. So it's important to keep up with this information. And I think the other company we follow for analytics is Quinny, which we've talked about in the past. And most of their data is holding tastings, telling people, try these wines, tell us what you think about it. Then they do it all over, collect a ton of this data. And then they say, this is what people are liking. And that type of data can more relate to more than putting it together, trying to make a trend out of it. Mm. So yeah, what I haven't
0: seen is the putting of those two things together. Together. How do you take the data of what people say they like and the data that shows what people are buying and how those two relate to each other? So that's information that I think would be interesting because there does seem to me to be a little bit of a disconnect between what people taste and what they say they enjoy versus what bottles are they actually picking up off of a shelf.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you said that too because to me, the end result of all of this tells me the same thing. You might not like what I like. Right. So, how do how do we how do we interpret it like, mm-hmm. like you said I, it's interesting i think it's something that's just a trend right now but for our listeners you know if you see an analytical report in wine it's geeky but you might be able to pick something out of it to help you become a better wine buyer or shop You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitashwineworks.com. If you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinlickers.com. The next article we want to talk about was in 3 It's a blog, and it was about the homogeneity and the differences in the wine world, and him. this was, uh, for me, it was an article when I first read it. It's like, this is going to be something geeky. But it ended up just being talking about differences in, in the wine world and how things are grown in different areas can taste different to me. And I'd like your take, what you thought of the article.
0: Sure. So I thought that this was a little bit of a different type of article than we usually talk about. You know, sometimes we'll talk about things that have happened in the wine world or opinion pieces that we will then give our own opinions about. I thought this was a little bit more cerebral. He's talking about science and aesthetics and what people like and why they like them. And I really like these kind of thought-provoking conversations about wine. So yeah, it was about diversity, what makes wine interesting and exciting because I know that I personally feel like the differences between wines is what makes them exciting and that sort of adventure of finding a new wine or tasting something that you've never had before. But because we don't all like the same things and we're not all drinking wine for the same reasons, there are different ways to approach wine. And sometimes having wines that do maybe all kind of taste similar might not be a bad thing. You're not always looking for the next hot things. Sometimes you're looking for a tried and true favorite, depending on what your purposes are. You know, you might say you, you have your Chardonnay and that's what you like and that's your go to and you're perfectly happy with that. You might not always be looking for something new and unique and different. So I can kind of see both sides of the coin of this article.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, like you said, if wines didn't taste different, it was kind of a boring thing to explore. I know I love trying the same varietal from different areas of the world to explore why it's different and I think you're like me in that way for exploring or it's for an educators it's great to show those differences when things are from another part but as a wine consumers our listeners you should always kind of be careful that if you're a Cabernet lover and you like Cabernet from California just be aware that just because you might try a French Cabernet it will taste different don't get disappointed that it's the French doing something wrong You, know, does that make sense Kim when, mm-hmm. when you're exploring like that so you have to be aware that there's differences between grapes that are indigenous to an area and there's grapes that are international. It can be grown anywhere right. in the world.
0: And that, and I'm glad you brought up the that international sort of aspect of it because there, there are grape varieties like Cabernet, like Chardonnay, like Pinot Noir that are grown all over the world. And say you are, like you said, a Cabernet fan. There now because of the advancements in technology of grape growing, winemaking, there are high quality quality, very drinkable, and inexpensive... Cabernets from all over the place. The downside to that for some people is that that then makes these homogenous Cabernets a little bit boring because so many of them taste so similar. It's almost like traditionally made wines are taking a little bit of a backseat to science that then are making very correct and perfectly fine drinking wine. But for those people who are trying to dig a little bit deeper into wine and are looking for that interesting different they kind of lose that specialness. But I think that there is room for both. I think there is room for basic wines of all different varieties that people are looking for for everyday drinking types of wines versus those wines that we are kind of searching for that's the next new thing or that is something a little bit different because, frankly, we taste a lot of wine. So there is a lot out there and we almost feel like we're missing the boat if we don't go and try all these new right. things that, uh, that we
1: know are out there. So Kim, explain to our listeners, how would you recommend if someone, I know I know you do it on your business cards where you say, if you like this, try this. So how would you explain to our listeners, what's your theory on that? If I came to you and I said, I like Cabernet, but I'm only drinking California Cabernet, what would you say to me to, to get me to try something from another area?
0: So I like to talk in terms of styles instead of in terms of grape varieties or regions. So if you came to me and you said that you like California California Cabernet. I know generally then this isn't the case for, for every California Cabernet. But generally if you like Cabernets from California you like rich red wines that are grown in a warmer climate that generally see some oak and there are other styles from other places in the world that also sort of hit that profile. So I might recommend Malbec from Argentina I might recommend some blends from Australia we could go to southern Italy we could do some things from central Spain that are made in a similar way might not be as ripe and full and jammy and fruit forward as people generally expect from California Cabernet. But I would give you a variety of wines that will be made from different grapes from other places, but that share those same common elements of ripe, rich fruit, full bodied and some oak treatment.
1: So would you say, I understand you like uh, Cabernets from from California, you probably like big, bold cabs so you probably like this Argentinian Malbec because it's bold, dark fruit. Exactly, yep. So I try to match the style as opposed to match the grape variety for people. And I think that that is great. I think people, when I approach people like that, they're very receptive to this is what I like, but I'd like to try something around. They're a little shy at first about trying to explore, but then when we explain this is why you want to try it, it's great when you get feedback. Hey, you you recommended that Malbec, I'm a cab lover, but wow, it worked, right? Yeah, getting
0: that feedback from... From the consumer is really helpful to us and it, we're not going to be right all the time When i used to recommend to people they would come in to the store that i was at and i would put together a mixed case for them if i was successful for them for nine of those 12 bottles then i felt like i was doing i was really on the right track for them because not everybody's palate is the same and there might be certain flavor elements that we didn't get around to talking about that you don't like and that i gave you a bottle that has that and it's a it's a learning process i'm learning your palate, you're learning my palate and we work together. It's really kind of a collaborative thing for me to match some good wines with you that are going to um, make you happy.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that about being right all the time because a few times I would follow up with someone and say, "How did you like that wine that I recommend?" So, "Oh, you know, I you know, I didn't like it for this reason." And at first I was getting very hurt. I'm like, "Oh my god, my palate <laughs> must be horrible." But you're right. Everybody, it's important to say why. What, what did you think about? Why didn't you like it? And then they'll, they, they're they pretty honest and they'll say it was too fruity or it was too yeah. oaky. So then, okay, now I know. So now I'm tailoring her in more and more.
0: Getting that feedback of what people don't like, I feel is more, sometimes more important than the feedback of what they do like, because it's almost easier to figure out the three things that people don't like about wine versus the 12 things that they do like about wine. So if you can really focus in on, I don't like this particular earthy flavor, or I don't like this real 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 dryness or whatever it is about the wine and then we know which wines really to avoid but
1: well, we're right for our palates we're right for us <laughs> right but, but for you we. everybody's different.
0: listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, we're your hosts Mark and Kim. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine and on iTunes. So our next article is from old friend Wine Folly, which gives fantastic information about anything that you want to know about wine with great graphics and really user-friendly stuff. And they had a quick little bit on Riesling. And I thought this was great because it was pretty much all visuals, but really, really useful information. So we just wanted to talk a little bit about one of our favorite grape varieties, which is often misunderstood, and that is Riesling. From one of our favorite sites. We, we know, go to this favorite site grapes, all the favorite time. sites.
1: So by now, our listeners should be saying they mention this site a lot. We should check <laughs> it out, right? So yeah, all about Riesling. So first, Kim, I thought I'd like to compare our profiles, what we think Riesling is, as far as taste and, and uh, aromas. So for me, the biggest thing I get out of Riesling is a peach apple profile. Mm -hmm. And I always assume it's going to have a little bit of sweetness. That's my interpretation. Yeah,
0: that is the typical style and usually what people immediately think of when we say Riesling. I get this question a lot from people at my classes or my private events about, oh, Riesling, isn't that always sweet? Or how does a wine get to be sweet? And I like to say that, well, it really does depend on what the winemaker decides to do. So there is nothing about the grape variety Riesling that says that it has to be made into a sweet or a semi-sweet style, but Traditionally, that is how many of them have been made. And a lot of people have come to enjoy the fact that those flavors, those peachy, those apple flavors that you just talked about, do go well with just a little hint of sweetness to the wine. So you do often find some, we call them off dry with those those Riesling wines that have just a little touch of sweetness to them. The flavor and the aroma profiles that I often associate with Riesling, again, that peach note, I'll usually get some flowery sort of notes, you know, some some floral notes. But one of the indicators of this grape variety for me and for a lot of people is this sort of petrole, the we get all of our wine terms from the British, so petrol is their term for gasoline, like you fill your car up with. And and that note I do find in a lot of Rieslings from Germany, from the Finger Lakes, um, sometimes from Washington, not quite as much, and a little bit from Alsace. And those are some of the main growing areas of the world that really specialize in this grape variety.
1: And I'm glad you mentioned the petrol thing because I wanted our listeners to hear that from you. I'm happy to talk about yeah. it. So <laughs> it's one of those terms when you. Mention in wine, like we talk about acids. When you mention petrol or oil or petroleum aromas and flavors in a wine. It's I feel it scares people yeah, away from wine. Yeah, people and-
0: wrinkle their nose. It's like, ooh, I don't want to smell gasoline in my wine. But S- it's just one of those things.
1: Is this one of the things if someone says, I'm looking for a Riesling, do you right away say, do you want a fruity style or do you want a more European petrol? I
0: actually don't bring up this flavor note unless people want to talk about it. I will usually concentrate more on what is the texture of the wine, and is it dry off dry sweet instead of talking about the aromas. And part of that, honestly, is because everyday wine consumers, not wine geeks like ourselves, spend more time tasting their wine and less time with their nose in the glass. We spend a lot of time with our noses in the glass and you don't tend to get that petroly note when you taste it. It's more when you smell it. So if you are looking for a glass of wine to enjoy with a meal, I'm more concerned with finding a wine that tastes the way that you want it to taste and then it goes nicely with the food that you're eating or if you're not eating anything if you're just drinking on, a, on its own but making it fit into how you are using it and how you how it fits into your lifestyle as opposed to what are the aromas that you're finding on the wine
1: have you ever had anyone approach you saying i'm looking for a nice strong petrol petroleum riesling because mm-hmm. i have never not had in so many terms ask.
0: no not in those terms but i certainly have had people tell me that they are looking for more of an alsatian style or more of a German style.
1: They know what they want, but they don't know it's petrol. They're, they're, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So you had mentioned levels of sweetness. There are a lot of things now on labels for dryness, what they call dryness scales. So let's talk about those scales and let's talk about how you can use the alcohol percentage as kind of a guide for sweetness as well.
0: So I actually love that wine producers have started putting this on the back of their labels. This started with a group of Washington state winemakers who got together and said, hey, wow, we need Need to figure out a way to make our Rieslings more appealing to the market. Um, because it is a bit of a hard sell, because there's that preconceived notion with Riesling that you're getting a dessert wine. You're getting something completely sugary sweet in there. So they got together and they said, hey, we're going to put on the back of the label this sliding scale from dry to dessert. And there are all these levels in between. No, they're not all the same because the winemakers could decide how they wanted to phrase it, but it goes from really dry, bone dry, no sugar, no sweetness at all in the wine to something that you could have with dessert or as dessert. Some producers will call their wines off dry or semi-sweet or lightly sweet or dessert. You know, there are a bunch of different terms. But if you do see that sliding scale, definitely take a look at it and use it to your
1: advantage. That's a great quick guide, especially if it's all the same winery and it just says, St. Michelle is key for this. Mm -hmm. There's there's four or five different St. Michelle Rieslings. If you want to find out what's... is what, you turn over and the the labels, the sweetness levels will all be different. So it's a good guy, good, quick guy. right?
0: The difficulty, I think, in particular with Riesling is that not only is it a, a wine that often will have some sweetness to it, but it's a grape variety that has very high natural acidity. And acid and sugar, when you put them together, balance each other out. So you could have a Riesling that has significant sugar left over in it. But if it also has really high acidity, that acidity is going to mask the sugar. So it's not going to taste like as sweet of a wine if it had a lower acid level. So just, you know, and that is something that is not on the label. So that is a little bit more difficult for consumers. And I'm probably just confusing all of you by bringing up the topic of acid. But when you taste a Riesling and it says that it's supposed to be, you know, semi-sweet, but it tastes very dry to you, it could be because it has that higher acid to it. Luckily, higher acidity means that it goes much better with food. And Riesling is one of my favorite wines for pairing with all sorts of dishes. So I think for me it's a great go-to
1: for a lot of different cuisines yeah but before we go to the food thing i just want to no 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 no. (laughs) i know you're a foodie i I just want to follow up on the alcohol percent with the dryness scale so many times you'll see it'll be dry on the on the sweetness scale and then you look at the alcohol and it, it will be a higher percentage of alcohol because they're fermenting all the sugar out so lower percent of alcohol should typically be a sweeter style riesling right and do you find that matches up with the sweetness Scales most of the time. Usually, so you've seen. Yeah. yeah,
0: I. That's my other rule of thumb for people if they are looking to buy a bottle of riesling but don't know how sweet it might be. Look at that alcohol. You're absolutely right, Mark. If you see that a bottle is showing at nine percent, eight percent, ten percent alcohol, chances are that has some sweetness to it. And then if you see one on the other end of the spectrum and it's twelve or thirteen percent, you can be fairly certain that that is on the drier side.
1: Before the sweetness scales, that was my educational tip. Oh yeah, look me at the too. Alcohol That was always my go-to. Now people will say, I just look at the sweetness scales, right? right? But a lot
0: of German Rieslings won't have that sweetness scale on them. So it's still a great tip if you're looking at a bottle of German Riesling or if you're looking at a bottle of Alsatian Riesling or or something from, say, Australia. Usually Australian Rieslings will be dry. But again, you know, take a look at that alcohol level and and use that uh, that little rule of thumb of ours.
1: And the producers are starting to put more on the front label. So you don't even have to turn it around. They're putting dry. They're putting late harvest. They're putting, sweet. So they're, they're telling you on the label on the front too now what style you're going to get yep. without even turning the label and over. And that's
0: very, very helpful for you, the consumer, because we know that that is something that, that you're looking for. You need that information before you make the decision about whether you're going to buy that wine or not. So I think that this is a good move on the part of the producers to recognize that this is a bit of a stumbling block for consumers when they are are looking at these bottles and that it's needed information.
1: Now let's talk about food. Ah. What is your go-to? I have a Riesling. This is the classic food I want it with.
0: So if I have one of those off-dry Rieslings, you know, something that maybe is 9%, 10% has a little bit of sweetness to it, I put it with spicy food. So this is my go-to wine with spicy food, whether it's Thai, whether it curry, whether it is buffalo Chinese chicken, Chinese food, sushi, anything that has a little bit of spice to it, I generally will put a wine like this with it.
1: And that's typically the go-to pairing. Yeah, with
0: because the-, the sugar and the spice, they balance each other out.
1: No. Years ago, the trend, which I think has changed a lot, was it was popular. It was a Thanksgiving wine. It was that turkey... Stuffing sides thing years ago, but mm. now it's not even people aren't even considering it. Have you seen that in the past? Where it was a Thanksgiving versatile.
0: Yeah, a little bit. I saw the same thing happen with Gewürztraminer for yeah. a while. Gewürztraminer was was pushed as great Thanksgiving wine, and and I think that the reasoning behind it is because Riesling goes with so many different things. There are very very few things that will pair poorly with a glass of off-dry Riesling. I honestly can't think of anything that it's a terrible pairing with. Um, There are some wines and some foods that if you put them together, you're just like, nah. Um, But there are very few wines that go with practically anything. And I think Riesling is one of them. So when you look at the Thanksgiving table, there's a lot of diversity. You know, you've got turkey. You've got maybe stuffing that has a whole bunch of stuff in it. You've got all those different vegetables. You've got things that are sweet. You've got things that are savory. (laughs) What is the one wine that's going to go with all of those? Apple pie. Apple pie, totally. Um, So if you're looking for something that is going to please a lot of palates and not make a bad combination with any of those foods, that's the reasoning, I think, behind going with Riesling.
1: So this is one of those grapes that, in a wine that is very inexpensive. When you're buying wine, Riesling is less than Chardonnay. Chardonnay is usually less than Cabernet. Do you think that's a good thing for the Riesling market, that it's priced lower?
0: They're not all priced lower.
1: Well, in general. Let's (laughs) talk in general.
0: (laughs) Well, you can... mm, to
1: grow it, a lot of times, is a lot less money. I guess it
0: depends on where you're getting your Riesling from, right?
1: Yeah. You always get to me on something.
0: Because <laughs> I'm, thinking of, I'm thinking of like a $80 Riesling. bottles no, from not, Germany. Not,
1: not the Germans. Because there are some the, really good ones. The Washington State Riesling. Sure. You can, can find $10 some very range. reasonable. You know, Kung Fu Girl. It's in the $10, $12 yep. range. Yep. So, so you people, know, it's something we're just trying to get around, Cameron, <laughs> like your budget, is that for our listeners, it, it is a, a wine you can explore because it is budget friendly.
0: Sure. So, and especially for those entry-level Rieslings, when you're, you know, if you buy that $10 bottle of Riesling from Washington State, you're getting good quality for $10. So I think for an entry-level wine, learning about the grape variety, you get you get good bang for your buck in understanding what it's all about with those $10, $12 bottles.
1: Thank you for joining us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. We would love your questions or comments. You can also find past episodes on iTunes or SoundCloud. Cheers.